Good morning. I want to tell you about a man named Nick Ripkin. It's actually a pseudonym. It's not his his real name, but he he writes under that name for security reasons. But uh, he was involved in relief work in Somalia in the 1990s. He was actually in Mogadishu when the events that are described in the movie um, Black Hawk Down uh, took place. And so after seeing so much corruption and so much violence uh, by those who were in power and so much suffering among the everyday people, see people starving to death every day, limbs blown off by landmines, that sort of thing. Uh, He began to wonder, is God good? And he began to wonder, is God powerful? And if so, why doesn't he show up in Somalia? And then his oldest son died. And it'd be an understatement to say that he, uh, his faith was in real trouble. And that's when he and his wife were given this two-year assignment by their, their organization to go around the world and, uh, and interview Christians who were experiencing persecution. And I want to share a, an example of the type of, of, uh, type of account that he heard. It's kind of an extended uh, example. But he was in a, uh, in a small village north of Moscow, and he interviewed a, a man named Dmitri, who had grown up in a believing family. Uh, during the, uh, the days of the Soviet Union, the uh, churches were being closed down, and so the closest church to him was a three-day walk away. And so they only got to church a couple of times a year. And so Dmitri decided that he would start teaching his own family. One night a week, he would pull his family together, and he would teach them the Bible. Then he decided he would start teaching them the songs that he had learned as a child. And then he decided that he would, they would start praying together. It sounds a lot like a church, right? And so uh, the neighbors found out about it and pretty soon neighbors started gathering with them on that one night a week. And when there were 25 people gathered, the authorities came and they threatened him and told him, unless you stop gathering uh, for worship, Uh, bad things will happen to you. When 50 people started gathering every week, uh, Dimitri lost his job. When 75 people started gathering every week, the authorities busted in and they basically beat him, slapped him around, threw him up against the wall and warned him one last time. When 150 people started meeting in his home every week, uh, they sent him away to prison for 17 years. And so here he was, he was 600 miles away from home, and he was the only believer in this this prison that housed 1,500 people. And so his two kids grew up without a dad. And uh, uh, when he was in in prison, there there were two, two disciplines that really sustained him, two disciplines that his dad had taught him. And so the first was every morning before dawn, he would stand up in front of his bed. He would face the east, raise his hands. And when the sun came up, he would sing this heart song, this song of praise to Jesus. And the other inmates hated it. And so they cursed him. They mocked him. They they threw food and worse at him. And so that was one discipline. The other discipline was anytime he found a little scrap of paper out when he was out and about, he would bring it back 
to his cell and he would write down scriptures that he had memorized and write down the, the lyrics to songs and, and spiritual sayings. And there was this, this little trickle of, of moisture that dripped into his room and he would take the moisture and put it on the paper and he would plaster it up on a, a pillar in his cell. And when the guards would notice it, they would come in, they would rip it down, they would beat him and they would warn him never to do that again. Well, as Dimitri was off in prison, his, his family experienced persecution. They did not escape the notice of uh, the authorities. And uh, eventually, uh, the, the uh, guards led him to believe, it wasn't the case, but they led him to believe that his wife had been killed and that his two sons uh, had been taken into custody. And so Dimitri was a broken man. So he went to the guards and he said, uh, Sign, write up a confession. I will, I will sign it. I will renounce Christ. Uh, I have to go home and, and find my kids. And so that night, the night before he was supposed to sign this confession, uh, God spoke to him. He actually let him hear that his wife and his children were okay. They were actually praying for him. So God, this miraculous thing, God communicated that his wife and his kids were okay. The next day, the guards come in, they hand him the paper, and he said, I will not renounce Christ. Short time later, the guards decided, well, we're just going to execute him. And so they took him, they took him out of his cell, they dragged him down this, this, uh, corridor in the center of the prison, taking him to the courtyard to be executed. And Ripken writes that the strangest thing happened to him. He said, before they got to the courtyard, 1,500 hardened criminals stood at attention by their beds. They faced the east and they began to sing. Dimitri told me, that it sounded to him like the greatest choir in all of human history. 1,500 criminals raised their arms and they began to sing the heart song that they had heard Dimitri sing every morning for all those years. Dimitri's jailers instantly released their hold on his arms and stepped away from him in terror. One of them demanded to know, who are you? And Dimitri straightened his back and stood as tall and as proud as he could. And he responded, I am a son of the living God. And Jesus is his name. The guards returned him to his cell. And sometime later, Dimitri was released and returned to his family. Does that sound familiar? It sounds like the New Testament, right? It sounds like Paul and Silas in prison and singing. It sounds like the New Testament, uh, others who were, were uh, being imprisoned, seeing the witness of believers who would not renounce Christ, who suffered as Christ suffered. It sounds like the New Testament, bearing witness, being unable to be silenced because they could not stop speaking the name of Jesus. It was accounts like that that resurrected the faith of this man named Nick Ripken. And so for the past 20 years, what he thought was a two-year assignment, for the past 20 years, he and his wife have traveled the world interviewing perse persecuted Christians and learning from them. And I'll be uh, quoting from him, referring to him extensively in this message. But stories like Dimitri's also confirm the wisdom and the power of the scripture that we're going to look at today. It's in 1 Peter 4, and it's a passage about Christians enduring persecution 
well. And if you're like me, if you've grown up in the safe, safety of the Midwest, you might have read these scriptures and you've thought, what does this have to do with me? What is the relevance? We don't fear the authorities busting in here, do we, and hauling me off to prison. It's just not a real threat. And so what does this passage on persecution have to do with us? Well, a couple of thoughts. Number one, there is one body of Christ. There aren't two or three. There's not an American body of Christ. There's one body of Christ. That means that we have brothers and sisters in Christ. We have other members of the body of Christ who right now, present tense, are being aggressively and violently persecuted. And that means that we need to remember them. We need to pray for them. We need to learn from them. Hebrews 13.3 says, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are also are in the body. Second, even if we don't experience violent persecution and all bets are off, we don't know, right? Uh, it may happen here. Some of you, some of us may go to other parts of the world. We may experience violent persecution. But even if we don't, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are still called to cultivate the same devotion to Christ that we see embodied in the persecuted church, doing the will no matter what the cost, rejoicing even in the midst of suffering, entrusting ourselves to God and his good care instead of giving up when things get tough. And so, Peter makes three basic points about persecution in this passage. Uh, this has been a pretty intense week for me. I feel like God's stirring up some things within me. I would invite you to, to hear these scriptures as, uh, as I have been hearing them this week. Three basic points about persecution. Number one, Peter says, experience persecution the way that Christ did. Experience persecution the way Christ did. And so in these five verses here, in verses 12 through 16, Peter describes persecution in a variety of different ways. And he's not talking about the suffering that's common to humanity. He's not talking about financial strain. He's not talking about health problems. He's talking about being mistreated because of our devotion to Jesus Christ. And uh, in verse 12, he addresses his readers as beloved. Whenever you see that, take that as a cue. Peter's saying, I'm telling you this because I love you, ultimately because God loves you. And so these comments flow from love. He says in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Since we live in a, a world that's at rebellion against God, since God has enemies, uh, persecution should not surprise us. It's not some strange or foreign thing. After all, Jesus had told Peter, who wrote this letter, and, and the other disciples, a slave is not greater than his master. They persecuted me, they will persecute you. And so if you and I think that we have a right to have a safe and a comfortable life, we will never deny ourselves, take up our cross, and we will never really follow Jesus, much less endure persecution 
well. To the contrary, we'll walk around outraged every time something doesn't go our way. One Russian pastor told Ripken, for us, persecution is like the sun coming up in the east. It happens all the time. It's the way things are. There's nothing unusual or unexpected about it. Persecution for our faith has always been and probably always will be a normal part of life. So Peter says, don't be surprised. You notice he calls it a fiery ordeal. Some people think that, that the persecution under the emperor Nero had already begun. And one of the, the part of the brutality of Nero involved impaling Christians on poles and lining the boulevards of Rome with those poles and then setting them on fire as torches to light the way. That could have been the fiery ordeal, or it could have just been a metaphor for refinement, for God's purifying of the body of Christ. He says that such ordeals come upon us for our testing. And so what the enemies of God mean for evil, God uses for his good. God uses persecution to refine the church and to prove that their faith is genuine. Almost anybody can say, I believe in Jesus. Where I grew up in South Mississippi, it was hard to find somebody who would would say, I'm not a Christian. Everybody was a Christian. It's very easy to say, even in our day. You You know a person is a genuine believer if they persevere. If when opposition comes, they will not renounce Christ. And so God uses that, that testing, that refining It's not some strange thing. And so instead of being surprised and dismayed by persecution, Peter says we should keep on rejoicing. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Peter's first phrase here is almost identical to Philippians 3.10 where Paul talked about he wanted to know Christ and uh, he wanted to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And so it's the same expression. To share the sufferings of Christ mean that you and Jesus, you have something in common. You share this. You experience the same type of mistreatment. You suffer the way that Jesus suffered. And so your Christ-likeness is to extend even to the point of suffering as he did. And because there's always great blessing in being Christ-like, there is always great blessing in being Christ-like, Peter urges, keep on rejoicing. Don't let suffering squelch your joy. And the clear implication that it is possible, and some of you know this because you've experienced terrible things and you still have joy. The Holy Spirit himself is still giving you joy. It's not just that you're a positive person or a happy person. The fruit of the Spirit, joy, is still evident in your life. life. It's possible to have satisfaction in God even when your circumstances are painful and difficult. And notice the connection between rejoicing in this life during suffering and rejoicing at the return of Christ, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. And so our rejoicing now anticipates the the rejoicing that will be magnified at the return of Christ. Verse 14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, 
you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Of course, Peter learned this the hard way, didn't he? Uh, the night Jesus was arrested, he did not, he, would, he was unwilling to be reviled for the name of Christ. When the, 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 those at the courtyard said, you're with him, you're one of them, Peter denied it. He wouldn't name the name of Christ. And so he, he avoided being reviled, but he also avoided the blessing of sharing in the fellowship of Christ's suffering. And so Peter declares here, I mean, Peter learned this lesson. God gives us these second and third and fourth chances. Peter learned this. And so here he declares that when we are reviled for the name of Christ, we are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. Now, it's probably an allusion to, to Isaiah 11, where it was promised that the Spirit of God would rest upon the Messiah. And so Peter's probably saying, just like the Spirit of God rested upon the Messiah, the same Spirit of God rests upon you when you're reviled. And so the personal presence of God through the promised Holy Spirit far overshadows and compensates for the pain that, that comes from any insults and threats that we might receive because of our devotion to Christ. And then he gives a significant qualification in verse 15. He says, now make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. And those first three things he mentions there, it's very possible that Christians were falsely accused of those things, of being murderers, thieves, and evildoers. The fourth term, meddler, is found only here in the New Testament. It may be that Peter coined this phrase. It literally means one who oversees another. And so Peter's warning against prying into other people's affairs, of being a busybody, of trying to dictate things to others that are really none of your business. And so Peter says, if you've got to suffer, make sure you're not suffering for doing something wrong. But, verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, one who is of Christ, it's only one of three places this term's found in the New Testament. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. He said, don't be ashamed, but rather glorify God in the name of Jesus. So he says, don't seek out persecution, but if you should suffer as a follower of Christ, use it as an opportunity to magnify the name of Jesus Christ, like Dimitri did, as I mentioned earlier. You know, persecuted Christians would tell us that avoiding persecution is really pretty easy. It really is. First, just leave Jesus alone. And second, if you do happen to find him, just keep him to yourself. Persecution stops immediately where there is no faith and where there is no witness. The reason for persecution then is that people keep finding Jesus and then they refuse to keep him to themselves. So if you want to avoid persecution, don't have faith and don't bear witness. Nobody will bother you. So again, Peter says, don't go seeking out persecution, but if it finds you, suffer the way Jesus suffered. Second, 
In verses 17 and 18, Peter says, See your present suffering in the light of the alternative, namely, the fate of the ungodly. So in these verses, Peter would have us put our our suffering in its larger context, the larger context that includes not just the the suffering that people experience in this life, but also the suffering, the punishment that people will experience in the next. He says in verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? So when Peter talks about judgment beginning with the household of God, I don't think he's changed topics here. He's not talking about God punishing people for their sins. I think he's still talking about persecution here. Christians being mistreated by a hostile world. And I think Peter is saying that God uses persecution to judge the, the, the uh, household of God, not judgment in the sense of punishment because they're not suffering for doing what is wrong. They're suffering for doing the will of God. God uses persecution as judgment in the sense of rendering a verdict. The verdict, these are my people because they have persecute, persevered. They have proven that they belong to me. There's this refrain in the book of Revelation that those who persevere to the end Those are the ones who will be saved. And so Peter asks, if judgment begins with us us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Well, the implication, the outcome will be far worse. They won't merely suffer in this life. They will suffer eternal separation from God for not obeying, believing the gospel. And in verse 18, he says, if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what about the godless man and the sinner? When he talks about it's with difficulty that the righteous is saved, I think he's using salvation in its broadest sense. Uh, the, The New Testament says to a believer, you have been saved. When you were converted, you were saved. You are now being saved progressively experiencing your salvation, and you will be fully saved at the return of Christ. And so it's a difficult process. You know that. It is tough. You have internal enemies. You have the flesh that craves sin, that wants you to to, uh, uh, not experience your salvation. We have external enemies. There's the devil and the world. So this is the unholy trinity, the flesh, the devil, and the world. And so it's with great difficulty that we go through this life and ultimately experience our salvation. And so if the journey is so difficult for the righteous person, Those who know and love God, Peter says, imagine what lies ahead for the godless man and the sinner. J.C. Ryle wrote that a single day in hell will be worse than a whole lifetime spent carrying the cross. And I get the sense from my rather limited reading that the persecuted church just intuitively gets this, understands this. And the implication is that we should too, and we should never envy the ungodly. Read Psalm 73. That's what it's about. We should never say, they've got it so easy in this life. I want what they want. I don't want to have this type of difficulty in my life. 
Paul understood this truth. In Romans 8, 18, he wrote that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The third thing Peter says is entrust your soul to a creator, to your creator, and then keep doing his will. Peter next explains what's actually possible. This is actually possible for those who put their own suffering in its proper context, as we've been discussing. He says, therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And this is just the opposite of what we, we see and what we sometimes feel in this life. When we're suffering for doing what's right, the, the tendency in our day is to shake your fist at God and say, God, why aren't you faithful? Why aren't you coming through for me? Peter says, no, don't, don't draw away from God. Don't, don't withdraw from him because of your suffering. Draw near to him and entrust your soul to him. And when you entrust something to another person, you're saying, I trust you. This is valuable and I trust you with this. And so Peter's saying we should entrust, we should trust God with our very souls. Why? Because he's a faithful creator. He created us and he is faithful to take care of us. Back in 2.23, Jesus, uh, Peter wrote of Jesus, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And so when Jesus suffered according to the will of God, he entrusted himself to his father. He trusted that God would ultimately vindicate him through the resurrection. And so this is one more way that we experience the fellowship of his sufferings. We entrust our souls to our creator. But how do we do this? How do we express to God, I trust you. I entrust my soul to you. Is this just a prayer? Is this an attitude? Well, certainly it's that. But Peter's answer is we, we do this in doing what is right. Instead of taking the path of least resistance in the midst of suffering, we continue to do what is right regardless of the consequences, regardless of the fallout. Now, when Jesus sent his disciples out in Matthew 10, he indicated that it is fine to avoid persecution. He said, if they persecute you in one city, flee to the next, okay? And so there, there are times when, when we avoid persecution, and that's permitted and good. But Ripken wrote this. He said that he and his wife never encountered a mature believer who requested, pray that our persecution would cease, said we never said never got anybody said go back to America and tell them to pray that that we would no longer experience persecution rather believers who are experiencing persecution ask them to pray that they would be faithful and obedient through their persecution and through their suffering that sounds like verse 19 doesn't it basically their prayer request is that they would entrust their souls to God and that they would continue to do good and so, as I, as I think about this passage and I think about our lives, I bring us back to these, these two points, these two points of relevance for us. Number one, there is one body of Christ. 
this very day, while we sit here in freedom, we sit here in comfort, we have all these opportunities, all these resources. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who are being aggressively and violently persecuted. And so we should pray for them. We should remember them and we should learn from them. This past week, I have been absolutely blown away by the wisdom that is embodied in the persecuted church. I want to give you one example. A believer in a house church in China made this comment. This person said, do you know what prison is for us? It is how we get our theological education. Prison in China is for us like seminary is for training church leaders in your country. And I confirmed this with a, a Chinese friend this week, and she said, yes, I've, I've heard that statement in house churches back home. And the idea is that in prison, while being uh, incarcerated, that believers learn to trust God. They learn what faith is, and they learn to believe the scriptures. Some Chinese believers actually lead people to Christ and plant churches in prison. And when they get out, and if they get out, they have this maturity and they have this depth of understanding. And there are whole swaths of the Bible that seem irrelevant to them. They know like this, this book, it, it, it describes my life. It exegetes my life. It tells, me, it tells me how to live. And I just have no doubt that that experience is more powerful than 99.9% of all the seminary experiences in our country. And so... There's much we can learn from the persecuted church. And the second point of relevance is that we are called to cultivate the same devotion to Christ in freedom that the persecuted church embodies. And I'll just leave you with a challenge that an Eastern European believer named Stoyan gave to Ripken. And Stoyan's father had been imprisoned and tortured after World War II. But he said this. He said, don't ever give up in freedom what we would never have given up in persecution. That is our witness to the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we have this amazing freedom. We have this amazing freedom to seek God, to speak the name of Jesus and to share the gospel. And it's a gift. It is a gift from God, but it's also a stewardship. If believers in persecution don't squander that, that, that stewardship of the gospel while they're suffering, how dare we squander this stewardship of the gospel with all of our freedom and all of our privilege? And I don't know what this means for you. Honestly, I don't know what it means for me. But I believe that God has, well, God has my attention and I believe he wants to get our attention with this truth. Would you pray with me? God, we bring ourselves to you and we confess that we, we don't really understand ourselves very well. We don't really know how devoted we are to Christ. We don't know how we would respond under persecution, but we do know how we respond when we're insulted, when we're annoyed, when things don't go our way. And so God, we pray that you would give us the devotion that we've seen in the persecuted church here today. 
We pray, God, that we would be people who know how to deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow Jesus. God, we want, we want uh, the power. We want to see you do things in our world, but we know it comes at a cost, and it's not cheap. It's uh, not without great cost and great effort. We do pray for the persecuted church today. We pray that the church around the world who is suffering, uh, people who are in prison and tortured, threatened, that they would suffer well, that they would suffer as Christ suffered, and that as they share this, the, the fellowship of Christ's suffering, that their witness would be powerful. We pray, God, that there would be great reward, great fruit, great blessing for the kingdom of God. God, may they be faithful, continue to do good. God, may we learn everything that you have for us this week. Bring these things back to mind. Open up the scriptures to us. Show us the things to which we're blind right now. And uh, have your way within us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.